You're listening to The Vent Podcast, where we bring you interviews and stories from around the world of wine and spirits. From winemakers and critics to sommeliers and master distillers, we'll explore the people and businesses who are instrumental in shaping the future of today's food and drinks culture. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, joined back in the studio by Billy Galanko. How are you, Billy? Doing well, doing well. We had a great, this will be two weeks after, but a great long weekend over the, what's that, President's Day weekend here in February? Yeah, I know. You guys on the marketplace side had off and us on the investment side where the phone was ringing. We were in office pounding the books. You can never take a break. Yeah, you guys got to have one of those holiday answering machines. That's what we did. (laughs) We we still got phone calls. Actually, I I think Michelle and our team actually worked all weekend, but that's neither here nor there. She (laughs) grinds. Yeah, and our our listeners maybe had some good wines over the weekend, extended weekend. Did you drink anything interesting, Billy? I shouldn't prompt that question because I don't really have an answer of my own. But <laughs> yeah, no, we we did. We made it up. We were up in Sonoma actually tasting food from our caterer, getting ready for our wedding, basically sampling some stuff, and then we did our engagement photos up in the Bay Area too. So that was that was fun. But as part of that, we did some tasting. Let's see, whatever a few of the highlights. Well, first we went to the Freeman. Freeman Winery out just outside of Guerneville in Sonoma County. It was pretty cool. It's been about two and a half years since we went up there and saw saw Ken Freeman and and tasted his wife wife's wines. His wife's the winemaker, Akiko. It's really cool. I highly recommend getting out to the property. It's a gorgeous little area. They have a cave built right into the hill. But the style of wine they make is I hate to use the term Burgundian, but it's very mineral driven and balanced. Sonoma um, Pinot and Chardonnay. They have one. West Sonoma ABA Chardonnay that's so lean and, and minerally. I, I loved it. It's He kept comparing it to Chablis. I think that's an apt comparison. But no, that, that was really good. We got to taste their full range of 2021 Pinots, some 2022 Shards. And then we also got, we tasted their 2015 Pinot Noir that had been developing really nicely. So we ended up getting a bottle of that to bring home. So that was that was a highlight. Otherwise, we went to a champagne bar. I had a, like a reserve Louis Roederer, which can never go wrong with. And while we were in Whole Foods, I, I came across a, since we're back, going back to the Vinalia episode, Hungarian wines. I, we were just walking down there, Whole Foods up there. And for some reason, my fiance and I always browse the Whole Foods wines, even though we never buy wine at Whole Foods. I don't know why. <laughs> and there was one just labeled oddity with the D's backwards. And I like drew my eye because it was also a, like a Hungarian shaped bottle. They have this unique kind of long neck, fatter bottom. And it was made by Oremus, which is one of the, I think it's made by Oremus, is one of the top, basically it was made by one of the top producers of in Tokai and the region. And it was, oh no, it's Royal Tokai. Sorry. No, no credit to Oremus. And it was a 2018 dry ferment from Hungary. So I was like, this is, this is cool. It's six years of age. Like I love dry ferment. So I actually bought a wine at Whole Foods just to bring back here. Which is weird. <laughs> I think the Whole Foods thing is five shelves of the most common wines that you can find in a <laughs> in a grocery store, and then a quarter of a shelf of stuff that you could just never buy, hardly at a local wine shop. <laughs> yet alone, that's like had been my experience with a couple I went to. They really give a lot of latitude to their wine buyer. Every yep. each Whole Foods we go to down here is different. I actually I really appreciate that. Although they do stretch the term local, like here in California. Like they mm-hmm. count all California wines as local. Like it at least goes <laughs> yeah. up through Paso and I'm like, that's four hours away, but whatever. 
It's funny. So cool. Well, then I guess we are also bearing the the lead here. We have our our highest uh, listens or downloads ever getting guests back on today. We have uh, Alan Meadows, Burghound, the, the famed Burgundy wine critic. Yeah, I mean, it's friend of the podcast now, second time yeah. on um, um, the pod. Um, great to chat with him. Actually, I think last time where we dove or were maybe a little bit more high level, we drilled down on a few like specific topics uh, this time a little bit more. I talked a lot about like price and quote unquote value in Burgundy. And so I thought he had some great perspectives on that in this episode. Did some vintage overviews of the two most recent growing seasons. And then I guess that was it the 2021s that are in market now. I, I think believe. the EP for 2022 was just released. Am I crazy? Yeah, I think it was the EP tastings for the 2022 that just happened. And then we overviewed the 2023 vintage just a little bit, like some kind of early things that he had heard on the ground uh, since he spends a lot of time down there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so great to catch up with him. And I thought some specifically going back to the conversation on value just offered some really apt descriptions of the way that the price of these wines has dramatically shifted over the last couple of decades. And he comes, he's been tasting in the region for a very long time, had a career in investment banking beforehand, which he touches on briefly, and then spent the second half of his, of his career in wine. And the difference in price between when he first started drinking and the chateau that he was able to access at that time versus now makes it really challenging for the average consumer to do deep exploration and to feel like they can take quote unquote risks <laughs> with maybe smaller producers when certainly you can start at three, four hundred dollars a bottle, depending on where you're drinking in the region. So I thought they had some good perspectives there that you'll want to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. I think just to clarify, I don't know why I was blinking there. It is we do discuss the 2022 vintage because they just sit on Primore and he was able to taste with a, a number of producers. So that's clearing that out. And yeah, I, I just a, a wine. Stickler thing, Brady. You said he tasted a lot of Chateau. They're mainly domain that are Burgundy. Burgundy. Yeah. Just have to have That's to be my, that, that police sometimes. I, <laughs> I, I bite my French off despite my German. But the other parts that I, I thought were interesting from the conversation were that he was basically, if you listen to, he has a book about like understanding Burgundy. It's like a primer. It's an overview. And he always gives his like recommended tasting dates. And he really enjoys the age elements of burgundy and and for good reason they it really once wines age that's when their their terroir their true greatness can can come out if you ask many people but he was saying how many people are drinking wines younger and younger even the top domains these days and i thought that was really interesting that he was saying that it would be important to train sommeliers with well-aged wine so that they don't forget what it's like because like, there could be some people who are just going into working in a restaurant and they're just serving what the clients what their customers are ordering and they're tasting that along the way. But if the customer is only ordering, you know, 2018 DRC right now, it's like, when are they going to be able to taste the well-aged versions of those wines? So I think that's really interesting to me that, to think about people, sure, some of these wines will be delicious young and they're fine to drink, but also like you should, maybe we'll lose some of the memory of like how great they can be down the line with time. I think that's an interesting conundrum. Yeah, unless you're willing to buy for the long haul, right? Because one of the the sticking mm-hmm. the sticking points again that we discussed was the reason people are drinking the younger wines is because if you want to drink DRC today, it's really the only access not even accessible, but 
that's the best price point that you're going to get if you're trying to buy like aged aged burgundy you're paying multiples and multiples above well so yeah and then in the high turnover nature of restaurants too not everybody wants to build the cellar like we got to talk to bobby sure. and bobby stucky and carlin from from their group out there and what what is their what is their restaurant group called again brady frasca frasca group yes yeah. yes put me on the spot now well, i forgot but like what, one thing that's so impressive about them is they buy wine they, they continue to buy wine both for current you know consumption as well as building their cellar and a lot of other restaurants used to do that. And now people are doing that less and less, especially with the pandemic. People had to drink down some of their cellar or sell that off to be able to stay in business. We're, we're certainly at a unique point with the price of Burgundy wines today. And and like he talked about people's preferences in terms of style changing. He was even mentioning some Burgundy producers are making wines that are going to be better enjoyed young, which mm-hmm. I mean, that alone is a big paradigm shift in the region. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's no one better to comment on these uh, topics, I think, than Alan. He yeah brings decades of experience in the region and, and I, I think has maybe tasted the most Burgundy of anyone recently just because it's so concentrated and focused on building relationships there and, and, and being an expert in that space. Take a listen, let us know. I know we have a lot of Burgundy drinkers at the Vint Marketplace and probably who listen to the podcast. So helpful content for sure if you're buying in Burgundy this year. All right. Well, here's our interview with Alan Meta. All right, we are now back with friend of the podcast, Alan Meadows, aka Burghound. Thank you so much for joining. Hey guys. We've had you on about, I think it was like a, a year and a half ago, maybe. And I think it, it's really exciting to dive in here and hear like, you know, how much, what has happened in Burgundy, what the recent vintages have looked like. I know you just uh, wrapped up a couple editions of your, your, I don't know, what do you call it? Like a newsletter? Or is it like, I know it's way more substantial than that. What, what do you call your editions that you produce each time? A quarterly review. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're always newsletter so sounds like it's ten pages. Exactly. They're two hundred each, so it's it's not quite the same thing. Yeah, it's almost like a, a prospectus. I don't know if that's the right word either, but no, they're so they're so detailed and interesting. I, I think I think most of our listeners know who you are. You are still our most listened podcast ever. You mentioned that, and I'm I'm still I'm extremely complimented, but I still can't figure out why. It's great, but I'm not sure what I said to to generate that kind of interest, but great. The people yeah, love well, Burgundy. <laughs> and that's probably yeah. it. With that, although most people know who you are, can you give us a brief, quick overview of who you are and how you got into what you're doing now? And then we'll dive right into more substantial wine topics. Sure. I was professionally, at least, an investment banker before, and I got to the point where I couldn't stand prosperity anymore and decided to do this instead. <laughs> and so the next trip in June will make 24 years of being a professional critic and 2024 is the 45th year since I've been coming to Burgundy. I have the, have the gray hair to prove it. And that's about it. I always thought that it would be fun to be a wine critic, but when I started, I really didn't have an enormous interest outside of Burgundy, Germany, Cote Roti, and Champagne, and and basically Sonoma Pinot. And the, the space, if you look at it strictly from a business perspective, the space was pretty full. You had Robert Parker, The Wine Spectator, Coates, Tanzer, uh, 
um, and a number of others. And I said, oh, I'm just, I just want to do one thing. And it's hard to believe given the specialization that has occurred in the space in the last 20 plus years, but Berghound was the first to do just one thing. And it was also the first to basically be an online resource. We've always had roughly 5% of people that take the printed version, but it was always meant to be distributed online. So that's the way it, it set up. I've expanded a bit to other areas to include Pinot Noir, no matter where it's grown and champagne and the coherency between those, it's all the same grapes. But there's not much more to say than that, other than we're distributed in 70 different countries, which is the genius of the web. You could never buy a snail mail. You could never reach that many people. It's expensive. Uh, we have, even with the limited um, printed distribution that we have, customs gets involved. Some countries are suspicious. Uh, it's the printed, it looks like a magazine. They want duties. And so... The web, in terms of electronic distribution, solved a whole bunch of problems. Yeah, I was also going to say you have, I guess you have like actual books and you also have uh, audio. I guess it's like a book as well that I've, I've listened to. Do you want to plug a couple of those as well? Because they're really interesting also. The books at this point are largely sold out. I don't know if you can buy them used, probably. I did see once on Amazon, a copy of Pearl of the Coat, which is about the wines of Von Rovede, available for $600, just a couple of years ago. And I was, and we sold it on the website for 60. And there was a, a very nice comment that I thought was both informative and funny because the comment was, and I appreciate, I don't know who said it, but whoever did, I appreciate the, the kind words, which was, it is an absolutely wonderful book, but you can buy it direct from the publisher for 60. So I just thought that was funny, but both books now are completely sold out. So we are now considering doing some second editions so that we can have printed copies. I'm, I'm sure they're out there. We sold enough of them, uh, to probably have secondary distribution where that might be. I don't know the. The educational series that we did, which basically is Burgundy Basics, is an almost 10-hour group of tapes, or in this case, yeah, you can just download audio files that discuss pretty much everything that a neophyte or even up to what I would call a medium knowledgeable Burgundy geek would want to know. And it's inexpensive. You can download a printed version if for some reason English isn't your first language so that you can follow along in case that I mumble too much in places. <laughs> we try very hard to, to make them distinct and have the, the audio files be clear, but for 10 hours, sometimes it's easy to do. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I quickly Brady and I'll let you jump in. I love that like the audio series to me is, is really interesting. And to your point, it did really span the gamut. Well, like I listened to it while I was studying for the, the, the WSET diploma and it was still, I was still learning plenty of stuff. There was like a lot of things that I learned and a lot of detail that was really helpful, but at the same time you, you bring it in, in a nice way too, that kind of lays the groundwork for if you have 
you don't just jump right into the the intricacies of some of the the different appellations, which I really appreciated. So I just wanted to, to plug that one because it's one of my my favorite things of yours. Well, I appreciate you saying that because it is true that I think factoids without context are hard to remember, and you almost unconsciously ask yourself, why am I being asked to memorize this? Putting it in a fashion that at least I thought people could say, okay, there's, there's a reason that this is worth knowing. And if there's, if it's worth knowing, then it's worth remembering. I'm curious a little bit about like just the business side of of what you do. You're independent. You're not like reviewers who are sort of underneath an umbrella of a larger critic or review or sort of media organization. What are some advantages to that? How are you, how do you, how are you distinguished from some of those other platforms maybe? And yeah, I see you're, you're spending a lot of time in Asia. I saw Shanghai, Hong Kong coming up this spring. Is that afforded more flexibility to you because of sort of being independent and building this ecosystem yourself? Yeah, like anything where there are additional sources of revenue that maybe can't be seen. It means that being fully independent with no conflicts of interest come at the price of perhaps not being as profitable as places that are willing to um, share a a revenue stream. And I want to make very clear, I'm not throwing stones. People, the space is already hard to make money in. There's a reason that people come in full of enthusiasm and two years later they leave. It's, it's hard to make a living without either advertisements or sharing a revenue stream in a way that isn't always transparent. And that sounds like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure how to express it without seeming to be judgmental because I, I don't mean to be, but not everything is as clean as hey, maybe it's presented. I'll put it that way. But we try extremely hard to be fully independent and be in a position to say exactly what I happen to think. That will, however, get you disinvited. I'm not welcome everywhere. And it's even gotten to the point where there was one domain that said, we like you, but our importer doesn't. The, this you were, and I said, well, it's odd because I read what I wrote and granted, I didn't say run out and buy every bottle you can find, but it's a long way from saying that the, the wines are good. And they basically said, yeah, but you weren't sufficiently complimentary. There's the, it, it does raise an interesting issue that is becoming, I think more and more important in Burgundy. And that is that the prices are so high now that the pressure is on for domains to basically be able to justify the prices that they're charging. One of them, and I appreciate that both of you understand this, um, but one of the big differences between say here and, and, uh, let's just choose Bordeaux, um, because it provides a stark difference between the way that wines are labeled, meaning you have an individual chateau. And no matter whether they make a second wine or a third wine, or in some cases, even a fourth wine, it is still identified with that chateau. Whenever you have sort of a shared appellation system, 
the way you do in Burgundy is that inevitably when you have, say, some Grand Cru's that are fairly large, 30 plus hectares, such as if you put Chambertin and Masboyer together or Clovujo or the Hill of Courton or Echizo, they're large enough where you have a lot of producers. All those producers don't make necessarily first-rate wine. And so you have producers that benefit from the reputations of those appellations that were made by others. And as a consequence, if you're in the middle or below in terms of what will be a continuum of quality that one might reasonably stack producers up, if you're at the, at the wrong end of that, you don't want people pointing out that, as the French say, the qualité n'est pas au bon niveau, uh, which literally means that the quality isn't what I would expect given the reputation of either the Appalachian itself or the substantial price being demanded. And it creates friction from a review standpoint. You know, if all you ever do is, is go visit Rumier, Roti, the Domaine de l'Omini, Conti, and Russo, probably not going to have too much to say that is unduly critical. I mean, you might say that 2021 wasn't as good as 2022 or 2020, but that's not the same thing as saying that the wines aren't good. You just have a preference for one of the two vintages surrounding it. If you go to somebody that um, isn't doing a good job, they're not interested in your visit. Or at least they're not interested in what you have to say. Yeah, that's curious. It it can be delicate from, from that standpoint. But I think one of the things that I, I didn't go to journalism school. I was an M&A specialist in buying large banks. But one of the things that I learned in presenting a very, at times, an extremely complex deal to a board of directors that were financially sophisticated, but didn't understand the intricacies of that particular transaction, to to distill a transaction with a lot of moving parts down to one page. That was, that was your limit, one page. Now you had lots of backup behind it, but most of these guys or women for that matter, had time to read the one page summary and say yay or nay. And so it, it taught me how to write concisely. And like I said, even though I'm not a journalist by training, I indirectly got that training and it helps in terms of being able to communicate sometimes not so much abstruse, they're not, you're not writing about concrete things. You are writing about impressions, opinions. It strikes me that, and then trying to project what a wine might become. And when somebody is, at least in the case of really high in Burgundy, is laying out a minimum of four figures. And the, in many, many cases now, the wines have become either so rare or so sought after that you're not likely to get more than a couple of bottles unless your contacts are really good so that you've built up long-standing relationships with retailers such that you, but uh, so that you can buy these bottles. But even when I was building the bulk of my collection in the second half of the 1990s, 
it wasn't unusual to buy from four or five different retailers to put together a case of something. How? Oh, go ahead, Ray. Well, I, I, yeah, I was going to ask about, I thought you made a curious comment about some of the size of the designations, how one might be 30 hectares versus what, what's the, what's on the smaller end? What's like the smallest? Well, the smallest Grand Cru in Burgundy would be La Romanée, which is a monopole of the, the Comte Leisure Bel Air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 85 hectares, or 85 hectares, sorry, 85 R's, which is, there's 100 R's in a hectare. For those that oh, don't quite remember their, really small. their metric school, elementary school training. So, it so that's like an acre and a half. Is, uh, yeah, it's two and a half acres per hectare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so in like this case, it's two. right at two, two acres. Yeah. yeah. I just thought that this idea that you mentioned of, well, at least I found that one of the ways to buy in Burgundy, if you don't know really what you're buying is to buy based on the designation or the vineyard, which is challenging when you have one that's really large and you have a number of producers, like you said, and the quality can vary greatly. What kind of commentary or maybe advice would you give to someone trying to explore these designations and maybe they don't know all the producers and how quality runs out. Obviously, they can go to some of your resources, but if you're standing in a wine shop, what can what can someone do to make some determinations about where to start? Well, Burgundy has always been it's a bit like the old adage about real estate, which was location, location, location. Burgundy is probably best expressed in terms of a buying strategy as producer, 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 because one of the things that gets you is competency at a minimum. Now it can get you a lot more than that. And I don't remember in the last podcast, if I mentioned the Meadows golden rule of buying Burgundy, if I didn't, then I'm happy to share it, which is that you may not get the quality that you paid for, but you will never get what you don't pay for. Burgundy is just too efficient. The old saying in the U.S. wine trade is that Burgundy is bought two ways, either before the wines ever arrive or on closeout. And you usually don't find much of interest on closeout because it's all been picked through. But that doesn't really answer your question so much as saying that there's not a lot of bargain to be had among quote unquote name Um, that's my role or then people like me that go through the highways and byways and back roads of, of Burgundy, which is to find the newcomers. I will say that secrets don't last long here. Anybody that's making really good wine, a figure it out fast because it's in spite of the fact that there's a lot of producers, there's not that many that are making world-class wine. And even if they're not making world-class wine, then you want again to obtain at least what you paid. And that tipping point is finer than you might think. The second thing I would suggest is to an aspiring collector is that you can never have too much information. Read, 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 read. So that when you're standing in a wine store the next time, you have some idea as to what you're looking at and also to gain an appreciation. And if we go back to your example about some of the appellations that are large, 
why you can have multiples of price difference with the same appellation. And am I, again, if I pay triple for the same appellation, am I going to get my money's worth? And sometimes yes, sometimes no, but probably mostly yes. I'm a firm believer that the best producers merit their prices. Now you can argue that for things that are super rare is 30 grand for a bottle of, of Romani cold tea, uh, that at some level you can't judge what somebody gets out of it because it is so much more expensive than everything else is, is buying a masterpiece that you painting that you hang on the wall for a hundred million. I can't speak to the guy that, that paid a hundred million for it, whether he thinks he got his, she or he got their money's worth. But if you take that category of wine, and there's not that many in Burgundy, there are bottles that cost a thousand to two thousand. There are, they used to be extremely rare. You could count them on one hand. Now there's plenty of them. But if we go to the super rare, the, the Moussigny from Rumier or Loire, the, the Rousseau, Chabertin and Plodbet, things that have price tags that basically start around 5,000. But again, if you take that price tag away, then your best asset is to have at least some knowledge as to what you're buying and why you're paying a premium versus staying in the middle of the pack and crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. The other thing, and this is just a flat out shameless plug, is to read somebody like me. Doesn't have to be me, but get advice. A good friend of mine, I, I thought, painted a pretty good image of buying Burgundy with, in this case, he referenced me, but it could be anybody, anybody competent, at least that's writing on the subject is that buying Burgundy without good advice is like going to a gunfight with a knife. It's not going to turn out well. So I, I think that is another approach. It also keeps you current as to what's going on. There is, and it's been going on for a while, but it seems to me that it has accelerated in the last two years. There's a generational turnover that's occurring here. So you've got the new generation that is now slowly taking over the reins. And like every generation has done, they're bringing their points of view, their experiments, things they want to try to try and improve quality. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but the wines aren't staying the same, uh, partially because the conditions aren't what they used to be, but also the appreciation of classic wines is changing as well. It's remarkable that somebody can lay down a thousand dollars for a bottle and open it next week. In, in my day, which is admittedly at least a generation ago, you would never do that. You, you put it this way, you might buy the bottle. Why would it be 10 years later when you decided, yeah, I probably have gotten at least some of the potential that's in the bottle realized so I can open it now with the expectation that I'm going to see what I paid for. It's not up to me to tell people where to find pleasure and justification in, in doing that. So point being that even great bottles that have been 
made with the intention of a 10 or 15 or even 20 year aging curve are being opened young. And the traditional producers are resisting changing. There's a lot of producers uh, now that are making wines to be more accessible. And it's interesting what they say about feedback, which is that even a, a moderate level consumer that comes to a domain and has no intention of keeping the wines for 10 years, they still want to be reassured that the wines will last that long. And so the challenge for today's producers are to vinify in a fashion um, that allows reasonable early accessibility. Um, but if somebody loses a bottle in their closet, buys it 10 years from now, assuming that the conditions weren't just awful, um, that there's a reasonable expectation that the wine would still be good. And that isn't the same challenge for a wine style that existed 25 years ago, which everybody sort of accepted that, yeah, I gotta, I have to sell her this in order for it to be good. Consumers, at least the average consumer doesn't want that anymore. I have, I've been having like a Rolodex of, of questions. I think that's, and now, now you've just piled on a bunch more based on that, but uh, two notes back on the size of the um, Appalachians or the vineyards. One, I think it was in your book. Is it when you're blind tasting a red Grand Cru Burgundy and you have no idea, if you don't know, guess, guess Clos Bougeau, so you're saying, <laughs> I've, been, I've been telling everybody that and I'm just like, ah, so smart. <laughs> but I did want to ask, have you found a, a parallel in quality based on the amount of holdings in a specific Appalachian or vineyard that a producer has? Is, is there an equivalent that they can have more control over their farming and that produces a better wine? Or are these people with like very small plots? I know that depending on the terroir, obviously, but speaking broadly, are they either selling their grapes or are they able to produce a good wine even if they only are farming a small piece? Yeah, unfortunately, that's a great question, by the way. And I'll give you two answers or at least one answer, but with some nuances. It depends on the domain in the reputation. There are those that can sell everything they make with no trouble. And so assuming that price is high enough, they will just produce it and sell it under their own um, domain name. If you have a lot of something, which a lot of something varies and you correctly said, depending on the appellation, because a lot of Bourgogne is not the same thing as a lot of Clovergeau or Echezeau or Corton Grand Cru's that have a good reputation, but are not Richebourg or Plot de Roche or Moussigny, there you probably uh, don't see very many people selling. You will find Negociant Romani Sauvignon, you can find, which is almost 10 hectares. You can find Negociant Claude de Roche, which is almost 16. So the larger it is, the more likely you are to find John Blends. But back to the sort of the positive side of your question is that the more you have, the more flexibility you have in vinification as well as declassifying young vines or, and I had a producer, in fact, yesterday, I won't say who, 
But I had a producer yesterday that just flat out told me, he said, I take all my young vines and I sell it. Um, that way I can keep my blend that I sell to my clients at the highest level possible. Um, particularly good strategy, especially because fruit contracts now are often more than most domains can vinify, raise, and sell themselves. So a lot of guys now are saying, why would I go through all of this and make less? And that is one of the structural problems that has come about in just the last 18 months. You could argue that it's been going on for a while and in some cases, but just to give you an example, there is, again, I, I don't want to name names out of people sharing confidences with me, but there is a, an extremely well-known domain in the Cote de Nuit that sells their domain wines for a lot of the, the, the stuff starts at a thousand and goes from there. That just tells you they don't have any trouble, but he is talking about dropping several of his negotiate. Uh, he makes, it, it uses a different label. It's identified with him. And so you can already go, okay, well, I'm down to four or five possibilities there. Uh, but nonetheless, just because he can't, um, buy them and make it profitable. In other words, there's not enough room, um, buy the fruit, go through all of the winemaking expenses and commercialize under a label that is already, um, extremely profitable. And so you sort of wonder where this crashes to me that said, okay, we're, we're at a bubble point. If you look at it in financial terms, because those that have traditionally been able to arbitrage, that's basically what this is is to arbitrage one price and sell it for more, declare victory. If it's now break even for somebody like this, where does that tell you this goes? My guess is that it, if enough people just say, I'm not doing this anymore, price had nowhere to go but down. Um, there is another aspect to your question on the side of the tiny producer, meaning not necessarily a producer that isn't well-known, but only has a small amount of something that becomes much more difficult because even the producer um, that has quite a bit of something, they can declassify barrels that didn't turn out as well for whatever reason. Um, to give an example of what happened to Christophe Rumier with his Musigny in 2002, he had a custom made barrel, never occurred to him to look at the toast level. And about six months, he made the wine, he put the wine, a barrel down. And he's six months later, he said, yeah, I should check on this just to make sure. And found out that it was a Francois Freire heavily toasted barrel. He's not to make fun, but excuse my French, he's holy shit. So he immediately wrapped out into older barrels, but the wine was marked and he can't just say, well, I'm not going to make a losing you this year. In other words, the margin for error is, is non-existent. And so that is one of the negatives of having very, very small amounts. The other uh, negative in having very small amounts in red, not necessarily in white, but in red is the difficulty, the technical challenges of vinification. When you have a very small mass temperature control, now that's been ameliorated considerably by temperature control, even small fermenters 
But before it was virtually impossible to make consistent quality year after year after year. What do you do in 2021 when you got crushed by the frost and an already small amount became minuscule and you make it in your bathtub? If you can't control the temperature and it gets too warm, your fermentation's over before you extracted any of the color and the tannins and the dry extract. But if it gets too cold, the fermentation stops. So it's, it's a really delicate dance and I, Christoph Rumier doesn't need me to extol uh, his winemaking skills, but the dude's a genius to have been able to consistently make that Musigny to almost never miss is an extraordinary technical accomplishment. Yeah, it's Musigny. I get it. It's great terroir, but just from a technical standpoint, that is entirely to his credit is remarkable. Yeah, want to start getting into Billy the twenty twenty two vintage and get some of your reactions from. I assume you tasted up and down the region. I'll leave it to you. The best place to start in terms of giving an overview of the twenty twenty two vintage, and then maybe some highlights and uh, nooks and crannies that you got into that you're excited about. Wouldn't be terrible to spend some time on the bigger names as well. But obviously, we want to hear about your explorations since you're down there on the ground so much. Yeah, this is the third trip to do the 2022s. Last June and July, I did Chablis, the Macronet, and the Cote Chalonaise. October, November, I did. And now I'm in the process of doing the Cote de Bonne. And it tends to get thrown around a lot, but I think 2022 has largely turned out to be what I would call a miracle vintage. This is not to say that it is the best vintage of all time, but if you look at purely the meteorological data. It is, or it was, the hottest and the driest growing season on record. Yet the wines are fresh, they're vibrant, they're transparent. They are double, in some cases triple, the yields of 2021, which makes it sort of a normal, normal plus, but not high yielding. It's certainly not 2023 or 2018 in terms of volumes. The other thing that makes it, I don't know about miraculous, but unusual is that you have two cepages, meaning two grape varieties that rarely do everything in the same fashion. And so it is extremely rare. If you look at my book that I co-wrote with Doug Barzillet on all the vintages and burgundies for the last 175 years, you will find that we noted that it is extremely rare to have the same quality level in both reds and whites. Just doesn't happen very often. Chardonnay starts earlier, typically at least picks earlier. When you have thin vintages or those that are afflicted by, say, rot, botrytis, it, it you can do things in Chardonnay to ameliorate or at least do palio interventions that help, but you have to use the skins with the Pinot and that if it's not clean or it's not ripe, you're constrained as to what you can do. Not to go too far down that rabbit hole, but in this particular case, I can't decide whether the whites are better than the reds or the reds are better than the whites. I suppose if you pressed me and said, choose one, I'd say the whites are that much better than the reds. 
but I could visit someone tomorrow and say, hmm, I said something stupid. It's that's how close it is. And as I mentioned, the yields are normal to normal plus, but not more than. So you had more rain in the Cote de Nuit than you did the Cote de Bonne. And there, sometimes you see the yields. And so this is by no means to suggest or imply that the wiser dilute, they're not, but they're not monsters of concentration either. It's not 2020 in, in, in terms of Pinot being dense for everything that implies. I still think that 2020 will be a great vintage in time, but the 10% of the bottles that remain 20 years from now, not many people are going to find out. They're just going to think that 2020 was rich and dense and not especially elegant. And today they wouldn't be wrong. But all that matter, I think, will eventually transform into seriously good wines for the simple reason that it too is unusual in that typically when you get that level of ripeness, you don't have acidity. Well, because the vines all shut down, you actually got decent ripeness levels with acidity. And that's unusual as well. For the first time, here's a, excuse me, bit of a scoop. But I'm on the verge of deciding that actually the Cote de Bonne Reds are more interesting than the Cote de Nuit Reds. And that doesn't happen very often. I think the last time I would say that it was pretty clear that the junior coat was more interesting than the senior coat was 1999, so 25 years later or thereabouts. Wow. But and that's mostly because Cote de Bonne didn't have the rain that the Cote de Nuit did. And so anybody in the Cote de Nuit outside of Chevrolet and Nuit, where there was hail, in addition to this massive storm, outside of those two communes, anybody's telling you that they, their yields were low, either there's a misinterpretation as to what constitutes low, or there was a specific problem in that vineyard. Um, so. The other side, you can occasionally have Cote de Reds that are not super fresh because the lower yields. But what I wrote in the last issue, because I'm always trying to capture in a few words, like a newspaper headline, but when you see something that occurs and in four words, you sort of have a sense of, of what happened. I wrote that the, the 2022 Cote de Reds were modern classics. And so the word classic is overused, but I'm not talking about classic burgundy that was made, say, in the 1960s or the 1970s, which is a nice euphemism of saying just ripe enough to be interesting. These are definitely ripe wines, but they are much less ripe than what was obtained in, say, 15, 18, 19, and 20. And even some 17s. Now, it's not 2021 ripe, or I should say classic. Those are, are almost cold. Those you could say, yeah, the 1960s and 70s, if you took this vintage and went back there, it fit right in. 2022 would be, at, if we were to take the vintage and put it back to those that were making wines or drinking wines 50 years ago, they would say, this is the ripest vintage we've ever made. 
So it's all relevant. But if we stay, and the reason I put modern classic, if we stay in the last 25 years, it, it actually is, put it this way, if you tasted them blind, you would say, this comes from a ripe year, but there's acidity, there's freshness. I don't have any jammy aspects to it. There's no heaviness to it. I think that the 2022s are going to be extremely popular. They have the energy, they have the transparency. They, on the red side, again, are ripe, but you would say it's Pinot. You don't have any trouble knowing the grape variety. Whereas in 18 or 2020, it's this Pinot or is it Syrah? You're not 100% sure. And on the Chardonnay side, you have zero problem. And for somebody that is not... My palate doesn't go to exotic. I, I don't care for it. One, it tends to what they say, gom, which literally means to sort of wash away the underlying terroir, but it standardizes everything. You know, if that's if all you're getting is exotic fruit, it's the nuance, it's all you have. You don't have anything that clearly says this is Chevalier and it's not Moorish and it's not Batar. And there you have that in in 2022, you don't have much exoticism, except in the terroirs, say like Rio Batar, for example, that naturally tend to give you that, even if you pick early. Is that a good summary? Do you want some more nuance? No, I think that's, that's really solid. I was, I was going to ask, I, I think he gave us the, the little snippet with the Cote de Bone Reds. Are there any specific appellations without being too giving yourself away too much that you were really blown away by this year that either they could be perennial performers or ones that you were just surprised by the quality well i may have said this last time uh, but if i didn't it's it's worth repeating that in the continuity you have every commune is basically a star you can focus on von shambol and jevray um but people are still interested in, in Nui and Moray and Rougeau. And even now, more and more because of the prices, Marcinet and Fisa, and especially since Marcinet will, at least if my sources are correct, are going to have Premier Cruz, that you don't have a, how would I express it? You don't have a bellwether commune, meaning that if it didn't do well, the assumption is that nothing did well. If, if Shamble got hailed on, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to buy Vaughn. Whereas for better or worse, Volney is the, the bell cow for the Cotinui, or Cotinui, sorry. If it didn't do well, which has been the case in a number of, of vintages in the 21st century because of hail. It tends to get hailed on a lot. The assumption is, and even though it's not fair and often just downright inaccurate, if it got, if it didn't do well, then the Cote de didn't do well. So I preface the response to your question by saying that Pumar and Volney did extremely well. But unlike a number of recent vintages, I think bone, there's a lot to the, the wines are very bone. And what I mean by that is that they're round. They are, without trying to dumb things down too much, a golden retriever, always in a good mood, always enjoyable, 
there's some very serious terroirs in, in about there's a number that I could cite, you know, Claude Mouche on the north side, Marconnet did extremely well, but almost everybody did well. Even you can look in the south where you need riper vintages in Mirage and Saltenay, those are very cold terroirs. And one of the reasons that they never developed the reputation is because an awful lot of vintages were especially right. And so if you look at impact of climate change, so that used the politically charged term of global warming, but climate change, and you go like this between the two grape varieties, I, I think you would conclude that because you can't make good, competent reds from unripe fruit, that it's been pretty much positive for the reds. I think the whites less now. There are appellations such as Osei d'Arès or Saint-Romain, where they made pretty strict whites in the old days. Today, they are quite good. They get right and they've become much more popular as a result. And on top of which, they don't sell for what Merso, Chassagne, and Bouligny do. You, you have a broader choice at still reasonable prices. I even like some of the uh, Chassagne reds. And I say even, not because Chassagne is not capable, but if you look at 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the commune was 70% red, 30% white. Now it's the reverse. And a lot of best terroirs for Pinot have been grafted over to Chardonnay, I think to the detriment of the reds that remain. When I look at, say, Clos Angel, and I see white wine planted there, I get that they're selling it for three times the price of the red, but it's not nearly as interesting as, the, as what the reds are, which is one of those circumstances where economics, I think, have served to the detriment of quality. Money's money. I'm a capitalist. And so who's to tell somebody that they don't have the right to, to make as much money as they want from a given piece of dirt, but that's almost a glaring instance of where the reds are more interesting than whites. And a lot of what they planted in Chardonnay down below, one of the reasons um, that the old school guys knew what they were doing is that it's all given to frost. They had Pinot there planted for a reason. And for your listeners that may not understand why that's important is that bud burst usually happens, depending on the year, a week to 10 days earlier in Chardonnay than it does for Pinot. And that gives you a week to 10 days of margin with Pinot that you don't have with Chardonnay. And if frost happens in that window, you have a problem. That's great. That's um, a great overview. Uh, yeah, it's interesting in the way that for someone who <clears throat> is so boots on the ground that you can draw those distinctions between you have, you've been in the region for decades now and to be able to look back and say, yeah, well, 30 years ago, the, the used to be planted this way and now it's planted the opposite way. And you can draw that, draw on that experience to make commentary, I think is, yeah, that's w one of the massive benefits of your platform, of your experience there, I think to draw those distinctions. So I appreciate that. I wanted to ask, pivoting away a little bit from a review of the recent vintages and, and those comments and, and just ask about, you get in touch or you get to spend time with a lot of folks doing wine tourism. I know you lead wine tours in the region, you do seminars and, and other events around the world. Has the 
type of collector and Burgundy drinker or the demographic or culture around Burgundy changed substantially in the last you know, five to 10, 15 years? And where do you think Burgundy is going? Maybe thinking about U.S. drinkers and collectors in terms of just culturally in the wine world. That is an outstanding question. And I would be the first to admit that I can give you my sense, but I don't really know. I, <laughs> it, you know, this inflection point I was talking about earlier with respect to price and the seeming unstoppable rise of price, it, it feels like we're at a point where the Burgundians are going to have to take a time out or risk losing a core component of people that have historically bought quite a bit of Burgundy. When you see just average level stuff selling for well in excess of a hundred dollars, you sort of have to say, all right, who has the wherewithal as an average American family to consistently buy that and serve it. It becomes a, a Sunday dinner or Sunday lunch wine, which is not the end of the world either. But I, I express it that way because I think it would be a shame if Burgundy became excessively elite. One of the things that is a draw is that it is elite. But when it becomes too elite, people start to say, I'm starting to feel like I'm being taken advantage of. And people that can afford their taste, that's the thing they hate the most, is to feel like they're overpaying. So that's one aspect. Two is that more and more, and back to my point earlier, that wineries are starting or domains are starting to construct wines that have changed from the past. And so are we going to have the same aging curve and consistent with that question, are we ultimately going to have the same quality that we did, that we used to when you open a 25 year old Grohl crew, uh, everybody is on the floor. They're so amazed at how good it is. I've heard it said, Jaye, for it's Henri Jaye, was famous for saying a great wine is good on day one and it's good on day 30 and years. I, I, I've never subscribed to that point of view. That's, there's an old saying here is having le beurre et l'argent beurre, which literally means have the butter and the money you would have from selling it. You can't have it both ways. And while I do think you can have compromises so that wines can be enjoyed younger, that without the tannic spine, uh, to allow wines to not just endure, but transform, they have to have the raw materials in which to do that. One of the problems with old, not all, and this is one of the conundrums that I think faces the, the Napa cab producers is that the old school stuff you had sung that 30 years later tasted like it did on day one. And then you had others that were just fantastic. They had changed so much. They had sort of become what everybody hoped they, they would. And 
there is, I think, pretty good illustration of my point is that it's really hard to have wines that are going to be good early and good 30 years from now. And so who are we building wines for? And who is that collector? And are the newcomers? And one of the things that I, I think is, is critically important that I don't see the industry doing is training sommeliers to appreciate older wine. And so if, because most of us, this doesn't happen to be one of those subjects for me, but I'm sure I could, we could find others where I like what I know and I know what I like. And one of the problems with that is that if primary fruit and youthful energy is what is all you're exposed to, then how do you develop a taste for well-aged wine? Or in this case, well-aged Burgundy. And if it costs an arm and a leg, then who can do it? And it's one of the things when I take older Burgundies to restaurants, I always make sure to share with the sommelier so that they can at least get a glimpse of what a fine old Burgundy has to offer. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody has to like that. Sometimes I do that. Is is it something wrong? Because that there's a, one of the things that all, all Pinot Noir, doesn't matter where it's from, if it's old enough. There is a bit of what I call a convergence of characteristics. And one of these is called what the French version calls soupois. That literally means an underwood, but it's that sort of earthy, sort of decayed leaf. And decayed leaf doesn't sound terribly attractive. It's kind of like if you kick over a log in the forest that's rotted. Again, that doesn't sound terribly uh, interesting, but you get that sort of strong forest floor smell. And most people find that to be quite attractive, actually. And that's what old Pinot does. And I like a bit of it, not a ton of it. I don't want uh, the nose to be dominated by it because otherwise then we're right back to say the exotic aspect where everything becomes standardized and sort of you lose the the terroir, or I should say the distinctiveness of the terroir. And so you're back to asking who's going to do that among the newcomers. I would say, to try and be succinct for a second, that there remains a very strong interest to understand. But like any endeavor, lots of people come and it's a bit like a funnel. You pour a bunch in the top and a little bit comes out the bottom and that's true of of every. And so I think that there is no end of interest for, I hesitate to call them neophytes, but let's say beginners in the wine sort of enthusiasm and everybody is eventually gets sorted. It's a bit like the Hogwarts sorting hat where some people wind up in Bordeaux and some people wind up in Burgundy and some people wind up in Germany. Some people wind up in Napa. No wrong answer. It's great that people are interested in wine and, and find things to appreciate. But part of that is also driven off of just pocketbook. You, you want to play in the higher end Burgundy? Gotta have a good job. It's not, it's not cheap. And that too, as somebody that's been around this for a very long time and has been collecting for a very long time. And there was, it sort of makes the audience that I'm talking to sometimes depressed because people will say, what's the easiest way to to build a really good seller. And I say, choose your parents with care. They're in great shape, but it's, it, it is, 
it's not easy today, not only just to pay for the stuff, but as I mentioned, when we started finding more than a few bottles of things. So that's perhaps yeah, not can, the most encouraging answer that I could have provided, but there, from just a pure interest standpoint, I don't see that anything has abated. It's as strong now as it was five years ago. And it's good, I think, for the industry that there are people willing to introduce beginners in a way that makes the complexities of Burgundy comprehensible. Well, and the sort of coming full circle on the comments that we made earlier in the episode about the difference in quality between producers in a single appellation, um, the issue with issue, well, the thing that you run into with affording Burgundy isn't the price you pay for the bottles that you really enjoy. It's really being able to uh, withstand paying for a bottle that disappoints you at plus four or $500 or whatever it might be, even two, 300. That's uh, when you're talking about a uh, more average consumer, you can't really afford to buy four bottles and be disappointed in half and two of them. So yeah, I pre- appreciate your perspective on those things. And it's gl- glad to hear that you still see broad interest, even if it means that accessibility is becoming a challenge. I think the market will figure those things out over time and producers will adjust to that and hopefully quality mean stays at the forefront. But I you know we're kind of running up, running up against time. Don't want to keep you all day long, but we really appreciate you uh, joining oh, us again. Go ahead. Try me. <laughs> appreciate that. Yeah. But yeah, pre- appreciate your time. Obviously want to have you back on again in the future because you give such good overviews, in-depth overviews over the regions and, and the vintages. Is there anything you want to leave uh, the audience with? I, I know that you had mentioned you're thinking about revisions of some of your past books. Is that something that's imminently in the works or are you able to tease anything like that? Well, at least to redo something with Pearl of the Coat, there's demand that we do have. I, I should have mentioned, I was remiss not to have said that Pearl of the Coat is available as an ebook. When I said it was out of uh, print, it literally is out of print, but it is still available as an ebook. And it's, uh, I, I think, well, it's not for me to judge, but I think it's very well priced for, for the quality of what it is. But we are strongly considering actually not doing a second edition. One of the, so much as changing by, changing by adding. Basically, I mentioned, because the format of the first one was Grand Cruise, Primer Cruise, but in a huge amount of depth. I did a very cursory overview of the village level wise, the Ludis. And in this case, and it's already written, so it'd be, that's why it's, it's fairly, it could be eminent that we will take what we did before, update the ownership positions, perhaps change some of the maps and then add all of the village level wines so that it, it's a second edition as opposed to just a reprint and do that because there continues to be a demand for it, even though it came out in 2010. So, you know, as an author, you go, it's nice that uh, people are still interested. So that's, that's one thing. Then I'm working on a terroir series that at the moment is for the 
Cote de Nuit to really drill down. And so it's, it's Ludi by Ludi and there's 700 and something of them, but also to take, for example, a clo that has several aspects, break it apart. It's fairly geeked out, right? I think would be the, uh, the professional term. Uh, but otherwise, and that uh, will be available uh, online or is that going to be published? I think it, we just started kicking it around, but I believe the conclusion will be, uh, I reserve the right to, to change that, but the conclusion will be that we'll actually do a printed copy. People like electronic copies, but mainly so they can carry it around. Printed copy, people like. I certainly do sort of like something physical in your hands that you can turn the page and, and look at. And so we'll probably do, do that. But the, the other thing I would just leave, and this is just a broad comment is if you want to be a burgundy geek, then buy everything up and down the hierarchy. It's wonderful to read. You see it on Insta or Facebook or somebody drink some mythic bottle and it's a natural tendency to want to do that too. It's, it's hard to know what the secrets are if you've never had the pleasure of exploring that. That's not what really, in my view, at least that's not what makes Burgundy so wonderful. Burgundy is wonderful because it is such a universe. There's such a myriad of terroirs and producers. And then you add a vintage, you know, that happens all the time. So you, you have this constant mix. And while the greatest burgundies are expensive for a reason, you don't have to spend a ton to enjoy what burgundy has to offer. And that's a compromise that everybody has to make for themselves, depending on how interested they are and the money that they choose to allocate to the hobby, but take it from me. Um, I have the occasion, and I suppose it's easy for me to say because I have the occasion to taste the greats, but that's not what I drink on a regular basis and wouldn't even if I could. I like the so-called little wines because those are the ones where you're likely to be impressed for what you paid. You couldn't buy really good Savigny for $50. That doesn't make it a cheap bottle, but in the context of Burgundy, it's kind of like, that's the going rate, unless you're going to buy a regional wine, but you can do that in Chassagne. You can do that in Santenay. You can do that in Ossé de Reis. You can do that in Montly. And if you want to drink Zelage wines, you can even do that in Pomar and Volnay. Bone is a wonderful picking ground where you can buy things. You can spend 150 bucks, but it's not necessary is my point. And so experiment. Read Berghound, read, I'm not going to cite the competitors, it's not me, read them. Basically get outside. There's the old, there's the old saying that's mostly applied to physical fitness, but I think it applies here too, is find your comfort zone and get out of it. And you'll be surprised at what you find, I think. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Alan. We'll stay in touch and we look forward to having you back on the podcast soon. All right. That was our episode with Alan Meadows, a.k.a. Berghound. I know it was a longer episode, but we could really talk to him for hours. He's such a wealth of knowledge on all things Burgundy. And I hope everybody really kind of 
took little pieces here and there that they can bring with them and, and stash away and maybe listen to the episode again because it has so much info and it does, you know, it's a longer episode. So maybe listen back, try to capture more info, but we will definitely have more from Alan in the future. So stay tuned. And for the short term, we'll be back with another episode next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.